morning. Welcome to those joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. We're on a journey through the Gospel of Luke this year, and today we're learning from Luke 4, The Temptation of Jesus. If you'd like to use a Bible today, the ushers will be coming up the aisles in a moment to hand them out. If you'd like to use it during the service, you can replace it at the back of the service at the end. In some ways, it's kind of comforting to know that even Jesus experienced temptation. The book of Hebrews in the Bible even comments on that, that it's a good thing that we have a Lord and Savior who understands the struggles that we go through in this life. But the reason that Jesus went through the hardships of human life, including temptation, wasn't just so he could sympathize with us. It was so he could be our champion, so Jesus could take on those things that have always taken God's people down into sin and this time, defeat them. This is a test of Jesus' purpose, to stand firm in faith, not just for himself, but for us. Love always makes a difference in our times of temptation. Have you ever noticed for yourself that when you're doing something for someone else, someone that you care about, you're able to be stronger than you ever thought you could? You might not know this about me, but I hate leeches. Growing up in Bemidji, I loved being in the water until those rare moments where I discovered a leech on my arm, and then I would freak out, get it off, get it off, get it off! Ah! It took a lot of doing to get me back in the water after finding a leech. But then when I was in college, I got a job working at a Bible camp, and part of my job as a counselor was to work at the swim beach as a spotter keep track of the kids in the water. And inevitably, the day came where a little girl came screaming up to me, a leech, get it off, get it off, get it off. And in that moment, every fiber of my being wanted just to turn around and leave, leave that girl and her creepy leech in the dust. But there was something stronger than my fear. I cared about that kid. She obviously needed me. And much to my surprise, I heard myself saying in this very calm and reasonable voice, don't worry, I'll take care of that. Then I opened the beach kit, I got the salt shaker, and I said, watch, this is actually kind of cool. Did I say cool? Sprinkled the salt on the leech, and when it started to shudder and squirm and let go, I did the melting witch from the Wizard of Oz sound effects. I'm melting! I'm melting! And the leech fell off of her arm, and she started to smile a little bit, and she said, thank you, and she dried her eyes. She went back to the cabin with her friends, and as soon as they were out of sight, I did one of these. <sighs> See, most of the time, human beings are motivated by what's going to benefit us. But we're actually made to find life by living in a way that's about more than just us. That the way of Jesus is the way of love that's shown in love for others. And living out of love is amazingly freeing because it brings strength and peace and direction. But the ability for us to do that doesn't start with us. It starts with God's love for us. Last week in the book of Luke, we saw Jesus was baptized into his calling as Messiah with God telling the world, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the first step that Jesus takes into living out that calling is this test in the wilderness that's going to drive home for him what it's actually going to take to be Savior for us. It's like a boot camp for the Messiah with the most terrible drill sergeant. 
But the way that this is done actually points toward its deeper meaning for us. God speaking Jesus' identity over him, and then Jesus going into the wilderness where his faith is tested, that's actually a new telling of an old story. You see, in the book of Exodus, God set his people free from slavery in Egypt, and God told them their identity. You will be my people, I will be your God. And then Moses led them into the wilderness toward the land God promised them. And this was supposed to be when they're learning how to be God's people, but they're tough students, a stiff-necked people, God called them. They fell into all kinds of temptations that kept them from trusting God. And what was meant to be a straight-up journey through the wilderness to the promised land ended up being 40 years of wandering in the desert. Because they pretty much kept falling back and falling back into these old circles of behavior that didn't get them anywhere good. For years as a people, they were stuck in these circular patterns of wandering in sin. And those patterns kept coming back even in the promised land. And what they needed and what we need is for God to intervene and break through that pattern of sin for us. And that is what Jesus came to do, to step into our story and break the cycle and give us a new way forward based not on what we do, but what he has done for us. And to show us that, that that's what Jesus came to do. When Jesus is baptized into his calling to be our Messiah, he is immediately sent into the wilderness for 40 days, one day for every year that God's people had been stuck in the wilderness. And in those 40 days, Jesus faces down the same tests that his forefathers miserably failed. So let's take a look at that. If you'd like to use the Bible this morning, we're going to start on page 1505 in Luke 4, and then skip over to Exodus and Deuteronomy, books at the front of your Bible. So here's the setting. Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's fasting. He's going without food in an ancient practice of spiritual openness. And it's in this situation of him being hungry that the devil issues this first temptation. The devil said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread.'" Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, where did Jesus get this? It is written. Where is it written? It's actually in Deuteronomy, in the teachings of Moses, who had actually been with the people in the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus' answer to the devil's temptation is from this story of God's people learning to trust him in the desert. And in that first wilderness story, bread was actually quite a big issue. We can find it in Exodus 16 on page 102 if you'd like to follow along. See, at first, God's people were just happy to be free from slavery. But it wasn't very long before they realized there isn't a lot of food in the desert. And that scared them. Now, they had seen God's power opening up the Red Sea to set them free, but somehow they didn't trust that God would think of the fact that they needed food. And instead of going to God in prayer, their first response to their fear was to complain to Moses. And in Exodus 16, 2 through 3, it says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. 
but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Pretty selective memory about slavery. (laughs) Makes me wonder, would we choose slavery over freedom as long as the food is good? They didn't even ask if God had a plan for the food problem, which he did. In Exodus 16, 4, then God said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. See, God used bread as his teaching tool. That every morning, these nutritious little flecks of something, white like coriander seed that tasted like wafers made with honey, appeared on the ground with the morning dew. And God gave them enough for every man, woman, and child for every day for 40 years. God was teaching his people to depend on him daily for what we need. Later, Jesus would teach us, give us this day our daily bread. The lesson was the foundation for life isn't in bread, but in God's faithfulness. So when Jesus responded to the devil's temptation to turn these stones to bread, Jesus answers with the truth of what God had been teaching his people. The life that I live isn't fueled by bread alone. I depend on every word that comes from God. That's where I'm going to put my faith. So what does that mean for us today? We don't live by bread alone, but our marketing culture sure tries to convince us we can. We're constantly told to eat, drink, consume, get more, have more, get all you can, because that's the good life. But at the end of the day, that will never be enough. A life lived by bread alone is a hollow life. It's a life of slavery to self, because having stuff for ourselves doesn't feed our souls. Human beings need more than that to really live. We need purpose. And God created us for purpose, to love him and to love one another, to use the gifts he uniquely gives each one of us to take part in creating a trustworthy world. But the temptation for us then, of course, has always been to be tempted to choose the slavery of our comfort over finding the unsettling call to live into the purpose that God has given each one of us. But if you believe Jesus, that our lives are not lived by bread alone, but on every word that comes from God, I have to ask you, have you been listening for what God has been saying to you? How do you make time and space to hear his word to you? Do we let our desire for comfort Drive out our hunger for God. God wants more for you than a life fueled on bread alone. But Jesus, our champion, passed this test. Instead of choosing slavery to self, he chose to trust God and to live into his costly calling that led him all the way to the cross for us. And today we live not by bread alone, but by the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. Today, as we receive the bread of communion, we remember that we're fed by Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. Jesus, the bread of life, fuels us by grace every day. Where do you find your daily bread? Which brings us to test number two. In Luke 4, starting at verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place And showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, 
worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, where did Jesus get his answer? From Moses in Deuteronomy 6.13. It says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Now, why did Moses feel the need to have to remind people to do this? Because, unfortunately, they kept going off to worship other things. Seems like people are always tempted to think that God is holding out on us, that following the world's way is going to somehow be better. To give up so easily on our prayers and worship instead things that we make for ourselves that have no power to provide us what we really need. But there is no substitute for the living God. In Exodus 32, uh, 1 through 4, it's on page 126 if you want to see it, the people learned this lesson. God had called Moses back up to the mountain, but without Moses around, people felt God was too inaccessible. So they said to Aaron, who had served as their high priest, Aaron, why don't you make a God for us that we can see? So Aaron collected all their earrings and jewelry and melted them down and made an image of a golden calf, and then he presented it to the people saying, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. They didn't. Seriously? Yes, they did. (laughs) Now that might seem ridiculous to us, and it should. How in the world could they believe this thing that they just made 10 minutes ago with their old jewelry now be a God responsible for their freedom? Seems downright crazy. Only God is God. Stuff isn't God. Until I remind you that what you worship is shown by what you give your attention. What has the most of your attention? What do you give power to shape your life the most? We all want to look good or successful or beautiful in the eyes of others, and we can end up sacrificing a whole lot of who we are to those temptations. But we are not made to be in relationship with a temporary flash of this world. We're made for relationship with the living God. Nothing else can take his place. And to choose to worship the things of this world for the flash and the pan thrills that they provide, it's a bad trade for who we become in our life now, for the sake of our world, for our eternal joy. Only God belongs on the throne of our lives. And what Aaron gave away to be popular with people was the presence of God. Knowing that we worship what we give our attention to the most, what we give the most power to shape our lives and define who we are, let me ask you this morning, what or who tends to become your golden calf? Thankfully, Jesus passed the test that Aaron failed. Jesus could not be tempted to worship anything or anyone except God, his Father, for any price. And Jesus becomes the new high priest forever, both the intercessor for us and the sacrifice who connects us back into relationship with God. We are not made to live only in connection with this world, but to be shaped by the living God. And Jesus opened the way of that relationship for us. So what's at the center of your worship What shapes you the most? Which brings us to our third temptation in Luke 4, 9 through 12. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What this temptation is really about is who's in control, who's calling the shots in this story. Is it God or is it me? And Jesus answers that temptation again with Moses' words from Deuteronomy 6, 17. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. What happened at Massa, you ask? I'll tell you. There's actually two things that happened at Massa. The first story is in Exodus 17, 2 through 7. It's found on page 104. The people were thirsty in the desert, and instead of asking Moses to pray to God for water, they accused Moses of dragging them into the desert to make them die of thirst. So then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sights of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the first story of what happened here at Massa is a story of people complaining about God and testing God instead of praying to him. They're saying, if the Lord was really with us, he'd give us water right now. And if you're a parent and your kid talks about you like that, how excited are you to go and get them some water? Thankfully, God is more patient than we are. Moses does what God says, and in spite of their untrusting behavior, God provides water for them. But then, nearly 40 years later, after wandering in the desert, we end up right back here again in Numbers 20, 7 through 13. The next generation, still mostly not trusting God, but this time, unfortunately, it seems like Moses has stopped listening too. Because this time, knowing the people needed water in Numbers 20, the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. He will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me, as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. So the first time at this place, God told Moses to hit the rock with his staff. This time, he told him to speak to it. But instead, Moses hits it twice. Well, why twice? Here's my theory. Because Moses is out there grandstanding, yelling at the people that he'd been frustrated with, calling them rebels, and saying, must we bring you water from this rock? As if he, Moses, had the power to do that and not God. And then he hits the rock dramatically and nothing happens. God doesn't do anything. Moses, that's not what I asked you to do. And then Moses panics and hits the rock again. And then God has pity on Moses and to help him save face, brings water out of the rock anyway. But what's exposed in that moment is more than just water. It's Moses' heart. That he'd forgotten God's power wasn't his. He'd rewritten the instructions to get the glory for himself. 
Who do you really think is in control, Moses? You or God? The Lord had already validated Moses' authority, so he didn't need to steal God's glory for himself. What made him think he had to do that? What makes us think we do? See, even though we know that Jesus on the cross shows us that we are worth so much to God, that we are worth dying for, something in us still really wants validation of our worth from people, right? We're tempted to listen to the voices of the world that constantly tell us we need to prove our own worth. And that temptation becomes the most dangerous of all because it tempts us to believe that what God is calling us to do is to try to be Him for the world. But we're made to glorify God by us being us and letting God be God, not by trying to be God. And when we fall into the temptation of thinking we have to be as wise or as impressive, as holy as God to please God or to do His work, we set ourselves up for depression and anxiety and ultimately failure because God doesn't want you to take over for Him. He wants you to be you and let Him be your God. And even Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who is God, didn't, as Philippians 2 tells us, consider equality with God something to be grasped but humbled himself in the form of a servant. And God raised him up in glory. So Jesus modeled for us how it's done, that God's power is made perfect in us, not by our striving to grab for it, but in letting him be God for us and through us. Our job is not to be him, but to be us and point to him. So when are you tempted to try and take over for God? to tell him what to do with your life or to assume you know how he wants you to serve him without asking him? When are you tempted to forget to let God be God? Well, where Moses failed this test, Jesus succeeded. And because he did, now Jesus is the one who has the task and power to lead us into the promised land of God's eternal kingdom, not because we perfectly live a life of a discipleship obedience, but because he did. And in Jesus, the 40 years of our wandering and failure are met with 40 days of his suffering and faithfulness, and he set humanity on a new course on the solid rock of his saving grace. So what does that mean then for us? As long as we're on this earth, we're going to face those same temptations, whether for 40 seconds or 40 years. But because of Jesus' victory for us, those temptations no longer need to derail us. They can simply become tools to point us back to God's true purpose for us. Because our temptations are usually variations on these, to choose comfort over God's calling for us, to choose that comfort over purpose, or to be tempted to look for relationships with temporary things of earth instead of the relationship with the living God, to be tempted to think we have to be God instead of letting God be God. So what do we do when we face those temptations? What do we learn from Jesus? Think back to my story about the leech. It's love that gives strength and courage that we can't have on our own. That in facing each of these temptations, love was at the heart of Jesus' answer. Jesus loved God his Father more than his comfort, his power, his own glory. Love is what overcomes temptations. And love in Jesus Christ is what picks us up when we fail 
and leads us back into the battle to learn one more thing about the world, trusting that our love isn't what saves us, but His love for us. And knowing that sets us free to just live into this life of love Jesus models for us, to live into the life God created us to know, knowing those traps that would derail us from what truly brings purpose and joy and peace. Only love defeats temptation, but it's more love than only we can provide. The difference now for us in this showdown with the devil is that we know our champion has already won the battle. Jesus' love overcomes, and every time we confess these things to him, we can be placed right back in that place of his grace to start again, learning to see, to be pointed back to God's true purpose for our lives. So this week in prayer, I'd like to invite you to ask God to show you which of those temptations most tug at your heart, comfort or calling, what it is you truly worship, what shapes your life, trying to be God or letting God be God. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what you need freedom from, redirection from, to show the truth of God's great desire for you instead, to know his purpose, his provision, and his peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to be our champion, that you know us so well, Lord, what tempts us and what derails us. Thank you, Lord, that you intervened for us to give us a new foundation of your grace instead. Pray, Lord, that you would show us, teach us what it means to be your disciples, that you would give us the joy of being part of your mission to make this world a trustworthy place rooted in your love. Lord, we pray that you would start with me, start with us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.